So what if you were the only person on earth? Spouses, please do not hit your spouse and go, well, they act like they're the only person on earth. Well, what if you're the only person on earth? I mean, really, nobody else on the planet. I mean, just, just kind of sink on that for a second, okay? No other humans, no, no animals, no pets, no technology, no, no forms of communication, nobody to communicate to. No cars, no roads, no scooters, no jet skis, no TVs, no iPads, no smartphones, no grocery stores, no home improvement stores, no donut factories, no ice cream shops, no snowball stands, no malls, no malls. I mean, just, just imagine it as kind of depressing, right? No donuts. I mean, really, I don't want to be on earth. The only thing you would have is the sun and the moon and the stars, the mountains, the valleys, the rivers, the oceans, the day and the night, and your property tax bill. I mean, that's, that's never going away. That'll always be there. I think sometimes we forget that the donuts are important. They are, you know. And we think, man, I'm the only person on earth and I don't have any donuts. And we go, wait a minute, I'm the only person on earth and I'm getting my property tax bill. But, you know, I mean, that may be how it plays out. But imagine, really, you're the only person on earth. And you're all alone and you're trying to figure out, what, what am I doing with my life? What am I going to do here in all of this empty space? It's, it's an overwhelming thought if, if we really sink in and consider it. And, and that aloneness, that loneliness in the vast expanse of creation is not a far cry from the way you might have felt if you were a Christian about 30 years after Jesus had died. There were no steeples. There were no pews. There were no stained glass windows. There were no cool auditoriums with cool lighting and cool sound and cool smoke machines. There were no pastors preaching in suits and ties. There were no pastors preaching in skinny jeans and smart glasses. There were no sermons about the power of the cross over the last 2,000 years. There were no buildings with with classrooms with comfortable chairs and, and coffee pots. There were no small groups that were meeting for lattes over at the Tip Top Cafe. There were no sermons about the cross. There was no messages about the cross. There were just these conversations about the cross. There there were these interactions about the cross. There was just this small scattering of people that were following Jesus of Nazareth. Just some, some scattered out groups of people who had radically committed their lives to Jesus, the one and only Son of God. Christianity, the concept of Christianity was still brand new. The concept of a a Christian church, still brand new. There wasn't hundreds of years of of history, church history from the New Testament church, because church history was just beginning. And with all beginnings, somebody's got to lead. 
Somebody's got to lead the way. Somebody's got to set an example. Somebody's got to hold the torch up and light the way. Somebody has to help the other people know they're not alone. For the next couple of Sundays, we're going to be looking at the concept of what it means to be an influence and an example. The powerful influence of good examples and bad examples. The powerful influence of a Christ-like example and the powerful influence and the dangerous influence of a non-Christ-like example. And so since we're going to be looking at examples, I would just encourage you, we need to go ahead and start asking the question, what kind of example are you setting? What kind of example is your life in the church and outside of the church? What kind of example are you? And does it matter? Well, if you're here this morning and you're discouraged, it matters. If you're here this morning and you feel like you're losing hope in some areas of life, or maybe you feel like you've already lost hope, it matters. Why? Paul's going to help us answer those questions. Listen to Philippians 3, beginning with verse 17. Brethren, join in following my example. Paul says, follow my lead, follow my example. Does that mean that that he was full of himself, that that he just felt like, I'm the guy, you need to come after me, I have all the answers, that that he was the, the famous superpower preacher. Man, you need to listen to my podcast, and you need to go online, you need to retweet my tweets, and you need to buy my books, and you need to listen to my audio books, and you need to put visiting my church on your bucket list so that you can come and get me to autograph the inside of your Bible. Is that what Paul's after? just a few sentences back, Paul has already said, you know, I haven't arrived yet. I'm not here. I I don't have it all figured out. I'm not perfect. That's a very important distinction for him to make. See, we live in a culture that says if you want to arrive, if you want to get there, if you want to have it all together, you you really just kind of have to do this one thing. Just, Just give yourself this one cheer. And what's the one cheer? Well, it goes something like this. You got this. That's the cheer. You give yourself that cheer, man, you'll have it all together. Susan Narjala, I hope I'm saying her name right, is a, a wife and a mom and a freelance writer. Back in March, she wrote this. Mama, you got this. You are enough. My heart sank when I read the last lines in an article on a leading website for Christian women. Christian mothers, sorry. My heart sank because it was my article. She goes on. The article was intended to encourage moms in the trenches of raising little ones and overwhelmed by trying to do it all. When I saw the article online, though, I noticed that the last lines had been altered. The original unedited version read, Mama, you got this because he has got you. You are enough because he who is in you is enough. The published article had left out God. She goes on. You're enough. It's a well-intentioned way of saying life is hard, but you got a handle on it because you're a fierce, independent woman. When you forget your child's kindergarten orientation, she says as a true story, or you lose it when your toddler throws a tantrum before you've even brewed your coffee. Don't beat yourself up. Because being a mom is undeniably challenging. And don't give up because you are strong enough for motherhood. You can do this. 
But then she makes this note. While that seems uplifting, as Christian women, we're hearing less than the full truth. The message is slowly diluting the gospel. This may sound disenfranchising to women, but but you and I are not enough. No one is. The calling of motherhood and of the Christian life is a high and overwhelming call for anyone. And then she says this. We posted this yesterday. None of us is good enough, kind enough, right enough, or strong enough. And that's why each of us so desperately need Jesus in the trenches every single day. You don't got this unless you got Jesus. And that's not meant to be, be catchy. See, we, we desperately need Jesus. We desperately need Jesus in the trenches of every single day. You don't need Jesus casually, like on a, a social media post that says, you know what, you got this if you got Jesus. You, you don't need Jesus flippantly, like on a t-shirt that says, well, I got this because I got Jesus. No, you, you desperately need Jesus. You need Jesus when your spouse is impossible. You desperately need Jesus when your children are rebellious or when they're apathetic. You desperately need Jesus when your parents are stubborn. You desperately need Jesus when people at work or school or home or even at the church are just rude. You desperately need Jesus when pastors or politicians are irresponsible or ineffective. You desperately need Jesus when when the bills stack up and when the car won't crank and when the water line breaks. You desperately need Jesus when you can't find work, when your boss refuses to work, when vacation plans don't work out, or when the medicine doesn't. We desperately need Jesus, not just mamas, but all of us need Jesus in the trenches of life. You know one of the ways that we find Jesus in the trenches of life? Through other people. Jack Arnold writes this, when we are discouraged, find ourselves losing hope, or stagnant in our Christian walk, then we ought to hang out with people who will influence us for Christ. That's what Paul means when he says, join us. He's talking about influencing people for Christ. That's the word he uses, right? Brethren, join in following my example. Come come be a part of this. When he was writing the folks over at Corinth, Paul said it this way, 1 Corinthians 11.1, be imitators of me just as I also am of Christ. Paul's not perfect, but, but he's striving to be like Jesus. He's not ignoring the concept of perfection. He knows that Jesus has called him to be perfect in all things. He can't be, but he is chasing after it. Listen, there is no pastor, no elder, no deacon, no Sunday school teacher. There is is no person, no church member. There's no person in the church that is perfect. And though you may not understand this, there is nobody at your house that's perfect. And there is nobody at your job that's perfect. And there is nobody in D.C. that's perfect. And there is nobody on your social media feed that's perfect. We're not perfect, but but Paul says, I have been captured by Jesus. 
His love, his mercy, his grace. I, I can't get enough, so I'm, I'm going to pursue him. I'm going to imitate him. Paul's not a Christmas and Easter Christian. He's not even an every Sunday Christian. Paul is a following Jesus, striving to imitate Jesus, being desperate in need in the trenches for Jesus kind of Christian. That's who he was. That was the example that he set. So generally speaking, if you were discouraged, if you were down, if you were losing hope, if your faith was stagnant and you went and hung out with Paul, you would be influenced for Christ. You would feel and find and see more of Jesus. So let's, let's keep the rubber hitting the road here. How about us? Can people say, man, when I'm discouraged... When I'm losing hope, when I feel like my faith is stagnant and I'm around so-and-so, boy, they, they influence me for Christ. Do we have people that would say that about us? Is, is that part of, of who we are? We're not talking about perfection, okay? We're talking about habits. We're talking about reputation. We're talking about attitude. We're talking about aroma. Do, do you smell like Jesus? We're not talking about Old Spice, the Galilee scent, okay? We're, we're talking about your, your attitude, what, what, what comes across in your life. Are you joining the examples of people like Paul and Peter, and John, and Timothy, Epaphroditus, Titus, Silas, Mary, Lydia? Are we joining the example of, of people like Augustine and, and Luther and, and Carmichael and Judson? Are we, are we joining and following the example of people like Ruth Graham and, and Billy Graham, of, of Johnny Erickson Todd, of, of Susan Arjala, and, and billions of other believers who have, who have set the example and who are setting the example of what it means to follow after Jesus, what it means to, to try and imitate Jesus? Now, are, have any of these people and are any of these people perfectly following Jesus? No. But are they following Jesus with passion and with purpose? Yes. We see it in the history of their lives we see it in the, the things and the articles that they write. We hear it in the testimonies that they share. There is passion, there is purpose, and they are pursuing Jesus. Remember, although the truth of the gospel existed before the foundations of the world, although God had been unfolding the truth of the gospel for about 6,000 years before we get to this scene and this moment, remember Christianity is, is still this new thing, and, and somebody's got to be an example. Somebody's got to lead. Now, every Christian should be following after Jesus. In fact, if, if you're not following after Jesus, then, then there's kind of an issue, and especially when we think about the life of the church, is if someone's not following after Jesus, they don't need to be the pastor. They don't need to be on staff. They don't need to be an elder. They don't need to be a deacon. They don't need to be a Sunday school teacher. They don't need to be a chairman of a committee. They, they don't need to be an elite. They don't need to be singing a solo. We're not talking about perfection. We're just talking about that, that there's evidence that this person is, is in some way pursuing Christ, that there's an example in their life. See, the call is not to have perfect leaders, but to have leaders that are pursuing perfection. Leaders that at the very least we can say, that guy, that gal, you know what? They are trying, they're striving to live a life of love and obedience to Jesus. Not perfectly, but boy, I see it. And when I'm losing hope, when I'm discouraged, when my faith feels stagnant, when I'm around her, when I'm around him, I'm, I'm influenced for Christ. Paul was doing that. And so were guys like 
Timothy and Titus and Epaphroditus and a bunch of other guys and a bunch of other gals. They were doing that. There were people in the early church when it, when it seemed like there were all these scattered people that were, were starting this new thing. There were people that were good examples. Examples of what it meant to follow after Jesus day after day after day. What it meant to follow Jesus in the daily things of life. And the same should be true today, right? I mean, there should be people that are, that are examples. And, and especially in light of this, that we've had 2,000 years of the gospel being alive on the earth. We've had 2,000 years of, of strategic presence from the Holy Spirit. Because we've had, I don't know, about 500 years of, of having the Bible available to us in our own language that we can read. Because of those things, we shouldn't have two or three examples in the church anymore. Like, more than 50% of the church should be examples. I mean, really. Most of the church should be examples of people that are pursuing Jesus. And why? Why is that important? Here's why. Because I need you. I need you to be following Jesus. I can't always be on. No matter how hard I'm trying, I don't have a, an endless fountain of spiritual wisdom and spiritual energy and spiritual time to invest in every need in the life of the church. See, you need me to be joining Paul's example, and I need you to be joining Paul's example. We are in this together. Life is cold and hard and difficult and depressing and discouraging. And we need the encouragement that can only come from knowing that when we're not feeling it, someone else is. And they will come next to us in the trench and say, let's hang on to Jesus together. That's how the early church survived. That's how the gospel got to you. Because those first Christians said, man, we have got to hang on to Jesus together. We've got to. Some Christians have this idea, well, I'm not doing great now, but I'm sure I'll be much better at following Jesus after I die. Yeah, that math doesn't work. <laughs> if you have any intentions of being with Jesus after you die, then you need to be following him today. Other Christians say, well, I mean, perfect. Nobody's perfect. Well, okay, agreed. But, but that doesn't mean we're not supposed to try, right? We're not supposed to pursue what are two words, maybe two of the most important words that Jesus said? Two words that have changed the course of civilization. Two words that have changed the lives of many of us in this room. And two words that can completely change your life today. You know what those two words are? From Jesus. Pretty simple. Follow me. Follow me. He wasn't kidding. He wasn't pulling a prank on the disciples. He, he kind of meant it. Jesus called people to follow him, and they did. They, they, they followed after him. Paul was one of those people. Paul said, hey, I'm, I'm following after Jesus. Come on. You come follow after Jesus with me. Follow my example as I'm following the example of Jesus. Gordon McDonald once described the five types of people that we meet on any given day. These are, these are five groups. You, you might want this later, so take a screenshot or the notes will be on the website either. This is, this is kind of interesting. 
VRPs, very resourceful people who ignite our passion. VIPs, very important people who share our passion. VTPs, very trainable people who catch our passion. VNPs, very nice people who enjoy our passion. VDPs, very draining people who sap our passion. Yeah. Isn't it bad that we all just thought of the VDP in our life, right? I mean, we can't even think of the whole other little. I know the VDP. I know that person. Yeah. And you know what? If you're a VDP, please take this with as much humility and grace and kindness as I can give it. You don't even have a clue, you know? Most VDPs have no idea that they are sapping the love out of everybody they're around. They have no clue. They're just being VDP, you know? Uh, but, we, but we run into these folks, right? So here's the bigger question. Which one are you? Where do you fall in this list? Are you the draining person? Are you the nice person, the trainable person, the important person, the resourceful person? But maybe the bigger question is, are you helping people find a passion for Jesus? Are you influencing people for Christ? What kind of example are you setting? Paul gives a very interesting way for us to find out what kind of example we're setting. He, he's interesting. He says that the way we find out what kind of example we're setting is by looking at what kind of example we are pursuing. Listen to what he says in the next part of verse 17. And observe those who walk according to the pattern you have in us. The word observe here means to scope out or, or spy out. So just let's think through this in, in terms of social media. Who are you observing on Facebook? Who are you observing? Are you observing the person that tweets the mean, angry political tweet and then seconds later tweets a link to their favorite old hymn? Following that person? Who are you scoping out on Instagram? Are you scoping out the guy or the gal that just posted every single outfit they tried on at the mall today? Is that who you're looking at? Or maybe you're scoping out the guy or the gal that took another picture of their abs to show how different their abs looked from the last time they posted a picture of their abs, and the last picture they posted of their abs was 27 seconds ago. I mean, is is that the person you're observing? Is is that the person you're scoping out? Who are you observing? Who, Who are you following? Who are you scoping out? Who are you imitating? Who is your example? We are all imitating somebody. We all are. Somebody said, no, I'm not imitating nobody. I'm my own man. March to the beat of my own drum. All right? That means you're imitating the person in the mirror. And don't forget what God said about the person in the mirror. Jeremiah 17, 9, the heart is more deceitful than all else. Be careful about your mirror. Be careful about the the mirror that you look at in the hallway or in the bathroom or in your bedroom. Be be careful about the mirror that you look at on social media. The mirror on social media that, that begins to define who you are. Because those comments and those likes and those unlikes, those thumbs down, those thumbs up, they do not define who you are. 
I listened to a great sermon this week by Pastor Louis Giglio about the importance of remembering that we should quit giving people we don't know the right to tell us who we are. And that's what we do with every picture and every tweet. We're giving the world the right to say, well, I'm going to tell you who you are. And his response in one part was beautiful. It's a song that we have sung before by Ben Fielding and Reuben Morgan. It says this, who the sun sets free, oh, is free indeed. That's who you are. I'm a child of God, and the song goes on to say, yes, I am. And then, then it says this. I am chosen, not forsaking. I am who you say I am. Young people, old people, middle-aged people, whatever you see or hear on social media is not who you are. If you are in Christ, you are a child of God. Who he says you are is who you are. And that's why we need Examples. Because sometimes when we're in the trench, we believe those stupid comments that people leave. Sometimes when when we're in the trench, we see that only three people have liked our picture on Instagram. And we begin to think "That's, that's who I am. But if you're in Christ, you are free indeed. And nothing can change that. One day Jesus was speaking to a crowd of people and he said this, Luke eleven thirty four. 34, the eye is the lamp of your body. When your eye is clear, your whole body also is full of light. But when it is bad, your body also is full of darkness. What does it mean to have a, a clear eye? Well, let me give you a, a funny version and then I'll, I'll give you a, a serious version. Funny answer and serious answer. Funny answer is, and I'm pretty sure someone in this room is responsible for me receiving this picture, but, but there's a, a meme picture out there uh, of uh, a Fred from Scooby-Doo. All right, Scooby-Doo, if you don't remember, if you don't remember how this works, at the end of every Scooby-Doo episode, they catch the bad guy, and everybody's standing around, and they pull off the mask. Oh, it's Farmer Johnson, you know, and they tell the whole story of how he was the bad guy, blah, blah, blah. And so there's this, this meme, and it has Fred from Scooby-Doo, and he's standing there in front of the bad guy, and I think I've got this, this line right. He goes, okay, now it's time to find out who sabotaged my Christian walk. And the next scene, he takes the mask off, and it's Fred. <laughs> see, Fred was sabotaging Fred's Christian walk. And see, that's important when it comes to having a clear eye, because, see, we are convinced that everyone else is the reason that we're struggling as a Christian. See, we don't look in the mirror when we're supposed to look in the mirror. Serious aspect of an answer to what it means to have a clear eye comes from J.C. Ryle. I love this. He or she is like a lighthouse in the midst of a dark world. He reflects light on hundreds whom he knows nothing of. His master is seen through every window of his conversation and conduct. His grace shines forth in every department of his behavior. His family, his servants, his relations, his neighbors, his friends, his enemies, all see the bias of his character and all are obliged to confess, whether they like it or not, that his religion is a real and influential thing. I love that last part, whether they like it or not. I, I can't deny that she follows Jesus. 
I, I can't deny that he follows Jesus. I don't like it all the time, and I don't believe it, and I don't care for it, but I, I cannot deny that when I'm around this person, there is this influence of Christ. So who are you observing? Who are you scoping out? Who you observe impacts the example you set, and who you observe impacts how clear your eye is. See, when your eyes are clear with the gospel, you will be influencing people for Christ. Please don't miss this. If you are influencing people for Christ, you are doing the absolute most important thing you could ever do on this earth. If you are influencing people for Christ, you're doing the most amazing thing you can do here and the most amazing thing for all eternity. Observing, scoping out, setting the example, having clear eyes, all of these things feed us to be an influencer for Christ. I found out uh, late yesterday that one of my dear friends from a former church uh, died this week. Uh, he's, he's with the Lord uh, this morning. And Quincy was one of the elders at our church, uh, me and along with four other men. We met every, uh, every Wednesday together. And I got to know Quincy through those meetings, but I got to know Quincy outside of those meetings. See, I didn't just respect him because he was one of our elders in the church. I respected him because he followed Jesus. I observed him. I, I, I scoped him out. He was an example to me of what it means to follow Jesus. Quincy was one of the first people I ever heard use the, the phrase BC days. He got saved, I think, when he was about 41, 42 years old. And he would often, every now and then, tell a story. And he's like, yeah, but that was back in my B.C. days, meaning before Christ. And it wasn't just a, an acronym, you know, just a catchy way to talk about, you know, when I we used to not be a Christian. Every time he told one of those stories, there was, there was that mixture of, of looks on his face, that, that mixture that, that saw just this pain of the sin, like, like he, he was still miserable that that sin was in his life. And then at the same time, the tearful joy that he had been rescued from that sin. Every Wednesday at 4.30 we met and part of what we did was pray together. And, and I remember in those times of prayer, Quincy influenced me through his prayers. He influenced me when we prayed, just me and him, outside of those meetings. But maybe the, the best example and the biggest influence he had on me when it came to prayer was when he did the invocation on Sunday mornings. Like here, we had a, a rotation of servant leaders who would pray at different times in the service. And, and the first Sunday that, that I was there that Quincy prayed, I was standing in the very back of the auditorium. And, and Quincy prayed, and when he got to the end of the prayer, there was a little bit of a pause, and he just said, Come, Lord Jesus. And then there was just this dead silence in the room. And after a moment of pause, he just said again, he said, come. I, I got to be honest, I opened my eyes. I thought Jesus just showed up. I mean, I, it was there. Like, Jesus just came back in this room right now. I'm going to open my eyes, and Jesus is going to be standing here. I, I've never just kind of felt like weird chills and all. But it was, it was just the authority with which he prayed, not from himself, but the authority of the gospel. 
As Quincy and I became friends, he became one of those guys that would get in the trenches with me. And he would hold me and help me to hang on to Jesus. So I followed his example. Was he perfect? Nope. Was he passionate in pursuing Jesus? Yes. And because of that, I followed him because what he did was he joined Paul in following the example of Jesus. And because he had joined Paul, I joined him. This is what Peter said. 1 Peter 2, beginning in verse 21. For you have been called for this purpose since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps. Jesus left us an example. So what kind of example did he leave us? Verse 23. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges rightly and righteously and eternally and perfectly. With every lash of the whip, with every punch to his face, with every pounding of the nail, Jesus kept trusting his Father. That's the example he left for us. Let us follow Jesus. And as we do, may the Lord help us to feel and say a little more. Come, Lord Jesus.